In our study of the foundational Daniel 9 passage, we have thus far examined verses 24 to 25, covering the first 69 weeks, or 483 years, 69 sevens of years. Let's begin this study with a quick review. The 70 weeks begin with the decree given to Ezra, the priest and scribe by the Persian king Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. The end of the first seven weeks, or 49 years, is marked by the completion of the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem. Not just the walls, not just the temple, but the city as a whole as a working civic entity. It's a restoration of Jerusalem, the city. In 408 B.C., the end of the next 62 weeks and the what is called the terminus ad quem or end point of the 69 weeks is 434 years later marked by the presentation and anointing in quotation marks of Christ by his father at his baptism. This took place in circa A.D. 27. We're now ready to proceed with verse 26. Let's read our passage. Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your holy people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put to end the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. This prophecy given to Daniel by Gabriel says nothing about the period between the 7th and 69th weeks. Once it describes the conditions under which Jerusalem will be rebuilt and restored, it switches in verse 26 
to events after the 69, or literally here 62 weeks. It gives us a time span, but mentions no episodic mile markers. For example, with the completion of Jerusalem in the end of seven, at the end of seven weeks. Some ancient and modern commentators have made the mistake of interpreting the end point of the 69 weeks as the point where the Messiah will be cut off. In other words, Christ's crucifixion. But that's not what it says, is it? It says the Messiah will be cut off after the 62 weeks. That is, after A.D. 27. Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. There is a variant reading seen in the King James versions. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So the, the, the majority of our translations say cut off and have nothing. But the King James Version say, but not for himself. You wouldn't believe all the different interpretations of both of these variants. Perhaps as usual, the Bible is our best interpreter. Turn please to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Let's read verses 7 to 8. Very familiar. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Aha. Uh -huh. So there's the. Isaiah illumines the second variant. Christ did not die for anything he had done, but for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. That's us. And as to the majority rendering, he left this earth having nothing to call his own, save perhaps those who had believed on his name. A commentator writes, quote, Born in another man's stable, cradled in another man's manger with nowhere to lay his head during his life on earth, and buried in another man's tomb after dying on a cursed cross, the Christ of God and the friend of the friendless was indeed cut off and had nothing. So there's something to be said for both of those, those translations. Very often, the King James, I remember uh, Cody, Cody, um, came up to me after class and he says, well, the King James says, doesn't say Zion, it says Sion, S-I-O-N. And I gave him kind of a lame answer. And, but really what it boils down to is the King James very often was from different manuscripts, original manuscripts. And, and in the time since 19, uh, 1600s, when the King James Version was written, 1609, uh, we have made a lot more, uh, found more manuscripts, found better manuscripts, uh, and, and 
new information to uh, trans with which to translate God's word. So it isn't that the King James was wrong. It's just, and also it was just a way of spelling. In that instance, it was really just spelling. Scion. You see that in other places too. Okay, the verse continues. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The Hebrew text does not have the definite article, the, in front of the word translated prince or ruler, as it does in most of our versions. The, the word translated prince or ruler is the Hebrew nagid, just as in verse 25. Gleason Archer suggests a better translation would be, quote, the people of a prince who shall come will destroy both the city and the sanctuary. There are a lot of people who hold that the entirety of this Daniel passage, all of it, speaks of Christ. The, the prince mentioned in verse 25 is the prince at the end. And you could easily understand that interpretation if you stick a the in there, the prince. Well, the is not in the Hebrew. So it's better rendered a prince. I said that. So those commentators do not recognize a different entity once Messiah is cut off, that the Messiah will return and do all that is described in verses 26 and 27 and, and refers to his interactions with the Jews. Frankly, I don't see it. Their rationale is tortured in the extreme, especially when they try to fit this prophecy into his earthly ministry. Although some questions remain, which we will courageously address, the dispensational position is far more logical as well as befitting the original text. To wit, a ruler, a leader will come after the 62nd or 69th week who will wipe out the city of Jerusalem, including its temple. Pretty much without exception, most take this as a prophecy of General Titus Flavius Vespasian. Here we go. It's his dad's name, Vespasianus. Titus Vespasianus. At the time, the older son of the Roman Emperor Vespasian. Sent by his father, the emperor, to put down the Jewish revolt against Rome, and he really really put it down. He wiped them out. The city and its temple were utterly destroyed. Once upon his, upon his father's death in AD 79, Titus became emperor. I know you were anxious to know this, uh, but ruled for only two years, dying of fever. This destruction took place in AD 70. 40 years after Christ's crucifixion and 43 years after the end of the 69th week. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. 
Gabriel's use of flood here is a metaphor for armies sweeping down onto Judah as a flood. doesn't mean a watery inundation. We see the same imagery in Isaiah. Please turn to Isaiah 8 now. Isaiah chapter 8. And notice how in verse 7, I got this one. Notice how in verse 7, he speaks of strong and abundant waters of the river Euphrates, but immediately connects that to the king of Assyria in all his glory. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Now therefore... Behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So there it clearly shows how an army from Assyria is being described as a flood. Jesus spoke of this as well in his Olivet Discourse, as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 6 to 8. And Scott, this is the last one. Sit down. <laughs> you will hear of wars and rumor of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. And don't miss that last clause. Desolations, uh, back to, uh, back to uh, what's his name, Daniel. Don't miss that last clause. Desolations are determined, which could be translated a strict determination of desolations or the determined amount of desolations. It's all planned out. It's all written down, as we will see in subsequent sessions. It is necessary as determined by the Godhead in eternity past. Note that in the Daniel prophecy, everything in verse 26 occurs after the 62 weeks or 69 weeks, but before the 70th week, which would make it difficult to imagine that the final 70th week were meant to immediately follow the 69th. There are some who hold to that, but really this gap that we are in right now is necessary to get everything accomplished. It's a necessary component to work out all that God intends as preamble to the final chapter of the last things. And we discussed the validity of that gap in our last session.
Now verse 27. Verse 27. Oi. Yes. Mike, that's... <laughs> Mike showed me. A, well, is that the, the uh, tree of life? Yeah, tree of life from last... Was it last week or last week? <laughs> In the, the uh, Hebrew... Mess, messianic translation says, Oi! <laughs> I like that. Oi! Oi! This is bad. Well, verse 27 is bad. It's, it's tough. I, I, wish I, I wish I had someone teaching this with me. I could say, Okay, you take 27. Here in verse 27 is a compressed outline for the seven years of the tribulation. This verse has also revealed that there's a certain level of freedom in interpreting a passage for which there is no consensus. I probably researched through 15 to 20 different sources. Nobody agreed with the rest or with anyone else. And struggling with this, I suddenly realized, well, hey, then go ahead. Because they don't agree with you. They don't agree with each other. They don't, they're just pick one and go. One expects a variety of opinions from those not in the dispensational camp. But what I discovered is an unbounded number of positions, even from supposedly pre-trib, pre-mill dispensational interpreters. Understand, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. This is not licensed to subscribe to just any fancy, fanciful notion one might make up. But it does mean the freedom to hold to an interpretation that some scholars assert, even if many other scholars do not. For it can be just as valid as the next. Something else is revealed, however, by the study of this passage, verse 27. And many other passages that have been, have been and will be a part of this class. Every one of us is free to hold certain positions, even contradictory positions. It's prophecy. It's opaque. It's hard to interpret, hard to understand, hard to make application. And That's just the reality of it. That's just the reality for this kind of a study. And that's the believer's privilege to hold to a position that may be different from your pew mates. But a deep study of, for example, verse 27 in this passage reveals that not one of us has the right to be dogmatic about his or her interpretation. If brilliant, highly respected scholars hold to opposing positions, who are we to declare, well, this is the way it is, end of discussion, period, full stop. 
Verse 27 should stand as a warning to all of us to put away that righteous gleam in our eyes and be respectful of differing interpretations by fellow Christians. We don't know it all. And some portions of this are just so opaque that nobody can be dogmatic. So here we go. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Before we dig into the specifics, let me outline the big chunks of this verse, the broad strokes. First, during his rise to power, Antichrist will make an agreement with the Jews to permit or even encourage their faith and practices. At the re, in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Second, at the midpoint of the tribulation or thereabouts, he will renege on that agreement and halt their sacrifices, both bloody and unbloody. That's the literal translation of the words in the, in the uh, original manuscript. Bloody sacrifice in which some living thing dies and unbloody grain offering. Third, Thus begins, as Jesus said, quote, a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Matthew 24, 21. Finally, at the end of which Antichrist, at the end of which Antichrist, the one who makes desolate, will be completely destroyed. That is, along with a false prophet cast into the eternal lake of fire. Of time. Five after. Okay, let's run with this. The Nazi regime desired a complete extirpation, that is, extinction, of Christianity. As the U.S. government concluded after combing through Nazi records, but considerations of expediency made it impossible to do so in one fell swoop. So Hitler employed a policy of gradualism lying to church leaders about the Nazi program, and then lying about church leaders to the German people, abrogating laws protecting religious independence, seizing control of church institutions, shuttering religious schools and seminaries, declaring certain denominations illegal, fomenting violence against church leaders, and sending anti-Nazi church leaders to concentration camps and murdering others. Alan W. Dowd in American Legion magazine. Our interpretation of verse 27 is that the he at the beginning is not Antiochus Epiphanes, not Titus Flavius, not Christ Jesus, but Antichrist, the beast. This is the branch we will follow, though there will be a second branching point coming up. The he spoken of in this verse points back to a prince who is to come, that is Titus who destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70, whom we see foreshadowing the Antichrist, who will become a worldwide dictator during the 70th week. 
Thus, in verse 27, we are now beyond types. We're beyond foreshadowing, beyond types of this. We're talking about the real thing. Like Adolf Hitler and countless other leaders and rulers throughout history, the Antichrist will be an inveterate liar. He'll be really good at it, doing everything and anything he can to further his intended goals. He will be seen at the outset as a savior, as benign, as gracious, as a wonderful boy. Are we glad that we found this guy? He's going to take care of us. He will be the world's Messiah. In the middle of the week, they learn the truth. But before that, the verse tells us, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. The Antichrist, this new leader on the world stage, this charismatic, winsome politician and general, will make an agreement, a covenant, chiseled as it were in granite, with the many, which is only found in the NASB. The other popular translations just say, with many. Well, that's important. It makes a difference. Let me get down into the weeds here just for a moment. The form of the Hebrew vowel translated many is la rabim, L-A-R-A-B-B-I-M, and clearly indicates the many, not just many, which would have been le rabim, L-E-R-A-B-B-I-M end of weeds. And here's the second branching point I mentioned. I normally try to avoid doing this, but here I believe it circumspect to present the two possibilities. First, Gleason Archer, a most respected commentator of God's Word, takes one branch when says that this refers to Messianic Jews newly in Christ since the rapture. That is, these are Jews who have accepted Christ as Lord after the rapture, as their their true Messiah. Just as Hitler signed a non-aggression pact with Stalin in 1939, then subsequently reneged on the agreement and viciously invaded the USSR, the beast will make a covenant with these Messianic Jews to permit their continuation of the temple practices. There will be a temple in Jerusalem at the time. I already see the, <laughs> I see, I see. <laughs> stay with me, I'll get there. Then after three and a half years, the middle of the week, he will abruptly and blasphemously break this agreement. Now, still with Archer. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Well, you might wonder, as I did, if they, these Messianic Jews, are now followers of Christ, what are they doing making sacrifices in the temple? That doesn't make sense. Here's how Archer explains. Since these Jewish believers trust in Jesus as their Messiah, it may well be that the sacrifices will be conducted as memorial services like our Lord's Supper. 
rather than for atonement purposes as in Old Testament times. This will certainly be the case during the millennium if indeed Ezekiel 43 pertains to that age. End quote. Well, perhaps. He's Gleason Archer. Who am I? I suppose it's possible that this might be the case, but it doesn't quite track for me. It seems to try too hard. Since this agreement between the Jews and Antichrist will be established during the earlier period of the tribulation, these may just as well be Jews clinging to their ancient traditions. Celebrating the reestablishment of the temple is God's sanction of a revival of the Mosaic law and its sacrifices. I mean, think about it. Rapture. Church is gone. No Christians. I can well imagine some Jews saying, great, let's get back to the Mosaic law. Let's get back to the temple. Let's get this done. They're gone. Either one could be the preferred interpretation, but I think the latter tracks better. As agrees the late esteemed Dr. John F. Walvert, longtime president of Dallas Theological Seminary. So that's one I think, I think we should follow. We'll follow that track. And we will develop this further later as we begin working our way through the tribulation period as recorded in the Revelation. Now, what might be the beast's reason for stopping all Jewish religious practices? From the next portion of the verse, we get a clue. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. The Hebrew text in the second half of this verse is challenging and about as opaque as it can get. Sometimes something that gives this away is the variety of renderings in our common translate translations. If you, and I heartily encourage you to, as you're reading and studying God's word, use different translations. Have your favorite by all means, but check the other ones too, because that will often give you a clue when you see that, oh, it's this the way here. And Every one of these is different. What's going on? Well, it's because the text is like this. It's hard, and nobody agrees. They all see it different ways, or they're working from different manuscripts. So that's a clue that this is a tough passage. The two NIV versions add words that are simply not there in the Hebrew. Temple and set. I told you I'd get you, Renee. Here's a more literal translation offered by Archer. Now, I'm going to read this twice. The first time I'm going to stick in the helpful words he sticks in, but then I'll read it more literally. Quote, and on the wing of abominations, he is going to commit abominations and towards the end or up until the end the predetermined judgment will be poured out upon him now taken more literally without those added words on the wing and on the wing of abominations commit abominations and towards the end the predetermined will be poured out upon him 
clear as mud. The NIVs take the noun wing, it's kanaf in the Hebrew, to mean something like a, a wing of the temple, like it's happening over here in this west wing here. But like flood in verse 26, here wing is probably used metaphorically describing the vulture-like role of Antichrist as he swoops down on his victims. I am, I have, I am knee-deep in the events of the rapture. And this, this passage, even Christ's eschatological address doesn't approach what's going to be happening. Thank God he's going to take the church out. We don't want to be within a hundred miles of this. We benefit in our understanding of makes desolate by the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 24 as he describes this moment. Here's what he writes, or this is what he said, Jesus. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then the person writing this, which would be Matthew, Matthew, he stuck in, let the reader understand. Then Jesus continues, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Matthew 24, 15 to 21. Antichrist is all about taking and holding power. Satan, the author of all this depravity, will know the truth that all this is fleeting because Christ's return is imminent. You see, Antichrist learned how to lie from his dad, Satan, who's the father of lies. Nobody lies as well as Satan. He's really good at it. So here we have Antichrist lying to the world, lying to the Jews and lying to the world, but his father, Satan, is lying to him. He's, Antichrist thinks there's purpose in all this. Satan knows the end, end game. Satan knows what's coming up. He's just trying to destroy everything he can as long as he's given the ability to. So here you have two liars lying to everybody and themselves. 
Satan is a better liar than his servant, and he's been stringing along Antichrist all the time, using him as a pliant tool to meet his purpose, Satan's purpose, to destroy as much of this world before it's taken away from him. Satan is no fool. He's read God's word. He knows what happens. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This world dictator, Antichrist, will hold sway until he himself is made desolate. I, I love the Hebrew word that, well, Gabriel used. Shamam. It means uninhabited. Antichrist will be made uninhabited. I like that. Empty, gone, void, as if he's not even there. He will be made desolate, which means until the wrath of God is poured out in his fury, if not before, at least at the climactic Armageddon. What a terrible time it will be. Now, the reason I wanted to be sure to finish today and still leave time for your thoughts or questions is that our next class will be, next session will be May 1st. We have three weeks, which for once I'm glad of. That gives me three works <laughs> to dig into this, including the necessary um, consolation from my wife after I come up from downstairs and my eyes are glazed over and I have a migraine. And um, so I'm glad to have the three weeks. Thank you, elders. Uh, now, any thoughts, any questions? So you said that Satan's goal was to destro destroy as much as he could before the world was taken away from him, right? I wouldn't be dogmatic about that. It seems that he's trying to do that. He will be doing it. But I'm sure he has other thoughts in mind, too. Yeah, so I was going to say, if, he, if that was his ultimate goal, then why didn't he start doing like what the tribulation is going to be doing as soon as he was given to me? Well, why does God, I would answer your question with a question, why, why does God throw him in the abyss for 1,000 years and then let him out? That doesn't make any sense to us, does it? I mean, Christ comes and he's going to establish a 1,000-year time of righteousness on earth. He's going to be on his throne. During that time, Satan will be in the abyss in chains, will have no impact on the earth. It'll be taken away from him. After the, the thousand years are completed, 
there's a throne of judgment, and then perfection, an eternity of bliss. But before that, in between the thousand years of righteousness on earth and the, end time, the very end time of bliss with Christ and God on earth, they let Satan out. Go do your worst. And his armies do their worst. Why? It doesn't make sense. Which I think is, it doesn't make sense to us that Satan does things the way he does. I don't know an answer to that. I'm, maybe somebody will tell me someday. I don't know. Satan is not God, but he's a smart cookie. And he has his motives. Go, Greg's going to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to throw in, you know, the, the vision, the heavenly vision, the, the, the peek behind the curtain that we get in Job, where God gives Satan the authority or the, the opportunity to go and, and, and do what he does to Job and his family. So one answer may be that Satan doesn't do the, what he would do now because he is not allowed to. That's, that's a good answer, yeah. He, he, he has to check in to get specific permission, like with Job. Yeah, he can't just, there are certain things he can't do on earth. Yeah, I think that's a very real possibility. Greg. Greg. I have a supposition on your dilemma. And it's Which my, one? it's my, well, <laughs> the one about why, why allow Satan to be, to come out of the abyss one last time. Uh, and it's my supposition alone. It, it's, it's all it is. Uh, As all of it is. Yeah. I've often wondered how we can enjoy heaven knowing that some of our loved ones aren't there with us, thinking that will be thinking that if they just had heard this or if they'd just seen that or or if God had just revealed this to them, then they would, of course, come to faith and they'd be here. Well, the millennium sort of puts a lie to that in that we have a perfect, a near-perfect situation with Christ leading uh, the, the world for a thousand years, uh, perfect justice, perfect everything, and, and what happens to those that are born into that, many of them still, still, because of once Satan is released, they, they still will deny Christ and shake it, their fist at God. And Very I, good. I, um, good point. I think that could be the reason God allows that. So we in heaven will know that, no, they wouldn't, you know, the... Those that won't accept Christ won't, won't accept him. The Bible points a, a picture of Satan's last army is numbered in the millions. Now, some say that isn't literal. Some say it is. But it's millions. Well, where did they come from? They were born during this perfect time on earth. Yes, that's a very good point. Yeah. Evil is in our hearts. <laughs> And the end times are what, what makes it so hard to digest. Everyone in this room has grown up with a God who loves, a God of mercy, 
of grace, of a Savior who gave his own life so that we could live with him, all of which is true. But God never changes. He still remains who he is. Christ remains who he is. And there will be a time, a time set up before there was an earth, before time itself. They said, this is the way we're going to do it. And it will be a hideous time, a time of just utter destruction and depravity, terrible time. And God is the author of it. And those people are given, you know, a thousand years of righteous. See what it could be like. Nope, it's not enough. And God will pour out his wrath on them. There's no prison on this earth to hold a candle to where they're going for eternity. They will be raised, if they're dead, they'll be raised from the dead. They will be given a body that will live for eternal life, for eternity, in flames. It's the wrath of God. I gave you 10,000 chances and you rejected them all, okay? This is what happens. It's fascinating, but it's troubling. Anybody else? When we return on May 1st, we'll start working through the tribulation. And I think I can safely say that it will be different than what you think. Traditionally, the tribulation time has been charted. Here's the seven seals, here's the trumpets, here's the bowls or vials. Sequentially. Most of the charts that I have looked at and studied do it that way. They all do it that way. But that's not really how it's going to play out. It isn't that this one thing happens before this thing happens and then this thing happens. It's more like a spider web. It's more like interconnected and leaping through time and circling back and... Um, the challenge is how to chart that on an eight and a half by 11. So stay tuned just to see if for no other reason, how did Lample pull it off? Father, we thank you for your patience with us. So very often, Studying your word, the flesh gets in the way. We can't see things how you see them. We don't understand your ways. But by the help of your spirit, we're understanding some of it. And we thank you for that privilege. We pray for your spirit to 
control the rest of this study so that we don't veer off of what you have shown to be true. Thank you for your word. What a precious gift it is. Even when we don't understand it, what a precious possession to know your mind, to know what you have spoken. We exalt you for that. We praise you. And we do so in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.